Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Alison Stockham. Her debut is The Cuckoo Sister. We talk about overcoming the doubt of whether what you're working on is actually any good or not. Also, why reading books to her kids at bedtime really helped her figure out pacing and structure. And you can hear what she likes to know when she starts, or actually maybe it's what she likes to not know. That's always a really good place to start with the stories, asking questions. Um, So I, I... I sometimes run a writing workshop where um, I just have a collection of pictures, postcards or whatever, and I get people to look at them, um, pick a character in that and then start asking questions. Why are they there? Where have they come from? What are they feeling? Where are they going? Why are they going there? Why are they by themselves? What are they carrying? All that kind of thing to just kind of fill out the story. Um, And I think when a story pops into my head, that's kind of what I do. I start asking questions of it and then it kind of hopefully develops into into a book. There is more on the way with Alison Stockham in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome to the show. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. It's where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done. It's really that simple. To see how they plan their day and their space and their own uh, life and everything else that always tries to invade your day and space and life to give themselves the best chance of getting their creativity down, of getting their ideas on the page. So hopefully they can get it out there, they can get the agent, they can get it published and they can sell a lot of copies. This week we are chatting to Alison Stockham. Now Alison has always been around stories. She's worked in TV, working in documentaries for the BBC and Channel 4 in the UK Uh, She also works for the Cambridge Literary Festival and she's got a novel out. It's called The Cuckoo Sister. It's all about Maggie, who seemingly has the perfect life, only she's cracking under the strain of everything. And when Maggie walks out one day and doesn't return, her sister Rose is all too willing to step into her life. You can hear everything that happens with Rose and Maggie, how the idea came to Alison in a little bit on the podcast. We talk about why every book is brilliant and every book is awful. Depends on context, doesn't it? Depends who's reading it, when they're reading it. And Alison thinks that piece of advice is actually really good for keeping you going when you're struggling with the ideas that you're getting down. Also, you can hear why she's half and half pantsing and planning. What working on in TV and in book festivals has taught her about the act of selling books, knowing where it will be on the bookshelves and the conventions of the genre that you're writing in. And you can also hear what to do when the computer starts staring back at you. Uh, also, thank you for sending over a lot of your best books of the year that I asked for a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I know, what are we, first episode of February. I know it's early to be sending through the best books of the year. I just think it's a a good thing to keep check with every now and then. We'll make our own uh, book club, I guess, a writing community, and we can just share fantastic stories, fantastic things that we've read, and check in with each other every few months or so. So thank you for sending yours in. We'll run through those in a little bit. Right now, let's get into it with Alison Stockham. And we start, as we always do, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I work from my 
dining room um, at the moment. Unfortunately, I don't have a dedicated writing space. So first thing I have to do is clear away the detritus of the morning. Um, And then I set up my laptop and uh, it gets all technical because I've got a laptop and a laptop stand. And then I plug in my keyboard um, so that I'm kind of writing without giving myself RSI. Um, and then I have my notebooks and in fact, I've actually set up here cause I was editing this morning. So I've got my notebooks and my post-it notes and I have my diary and my to-do list. And I have a, a notebook for the book that I'm working on. And then I have a different notebook that has kind of like to-do, um, admin tasks and marketing. Cause if I get them all confused, I'll, I'll get, um, messed up and I'll forget to do things. Um, and my dining room looks out through the kitchen to the garden. So I have a nice view of, of the park behind our house. And uh, yeah, generally see the cat wandering around. She was begging to be fed just before we started. I'm like, if I feed you now, will you leave me alone long enough to do this? <laughs> because you guarantee I can ask everyone to be quiet and like give me some space. But she's like, no, no, feed me, feed me now. Um, and that's basically it, really. I kind of, I mean, I kind of set up where I need to be. But when I'm at home, I, I work from the dining room. I tell you, what's amazing is that sometimes it takes a little while for me when I chat to authors to kind of drag out the practicalities of their writing space. But you've nailed it in one. We've got the notebooks, the different notebooks. We've got everything around you. So it's all very practical. Is there anything inspirational around you, maybe? Uh, 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 tokens of success or nice paintings what's going on uh yes I mean one of the reasons I've got that answer down pat is I've been listening to the show for years <laughs> I listened to it while I was uh while I was drafting while I was uh querying for agents while I was on submission so I'm very excited to be here today um but the, the kind of less practical elements of where I write so I've got a um a whiteboard across from me that theoretically was bought for the, the joy that was homeschooling but then <laughs> where that clearly didn't work properly and that's not turned into my notebook and it's got a couple of nice things that some friends have sent me who kind of like you can do this keep going I've now got copies of my book um sat up there some press copies to go out a couple of my copies um and then to the to the side of me on the wall I have a painting um by the artist Louise McIntosh and I'd followed her on on social medias for ages. And then when I got my book deal, I decided to treat myself as a kind of well done. Um, I bought one of her paintings. Um, and so when I look at it, not only do I love the painting and the picture, it reminds me um, of how far I've come. Because I think it's really easy when you're writing to kind of always keep moving the goalposts and kind of think, well, now I need to do this and now I need to achieve this. Um, and it's kind of a nice reminder to think, do you know what? Two years ago, you didn't have an agent. You didn't have a book deal. And sometimes it's nice to remember all the good stuff without fretting about the next set of things, which I think writers are quite good at doing. Is, is there anything, uh, aside from looking at fab- fabulous paintings, that you do to bear that in mind? I'm, I am very aware that, especially for authors, you're on this constant treadmill. So you finally manage to get on. It's what you've always wanted is to get a debut book out there. And then you realise, well, the work's just only started. I need to do the next book I need to do press I need to do planning what do you do to I, I guess stabilize yourself in the now and just just take a moment to remember how far you've come without sounding very uh, kind of woo-woo and hokey <laughs> I know what you mean but it's true um there's a constant moving of the goalposts and kind of thinking well now I need to do this um and I think I have three things with that I think one um again when I got my agent I bought myself a little token it's a wear and resist necklace that just says persist because I reminded myself that at each stage, that's kind of really what you need to do. You kind of need to persist to finish the book. You need to persist to fit to get, keep on with querying and then being on submission and then all the other things. So just remind yourself, just keep going. Um, the other is other writers, because I'm in a fantastic debut group um, on Twitter and we all keep each other sane. So when we're sort of going off and like, oh no, what about this? What about this? Somebody will always be there to say, come on, remember, like when you, a year ago, would you be really happy with where you are now? Um, and the other is my family who are, who are both really supportive um, and particularly my children are completely disinterested. So it just, it nicely grounds me when they're like, oh, you're talking about your book again, mom. Oh. Which then means we, exactly. It just means I go, yeah, I wrote a book. Um, and sometimes it just hits me when I think, God, I really did. That's really exciting. 
around you. You mentioned the notebooks that you've got. Um, what is there that kind of helps you keep track of where you are in the story? Is there some grand master plan, chapter by chapter, character by character? Well, I'm a bit of a kind of half a planner, half a pantser in that I have, when I'm drafting a book, um, plot points that I want to hit. I kind of have an idea and I turn it into a synopsis and then I turn it into a um, a larger document and I kind of pad it out to make sure that there's enough there from the idea to actually turn it into a, a fully fledged book. And I have sort of say 15 to 20 points throughout the book that I want to reach. Um, and then I write a first draft with the permission to completely ignore it if necessary. So I kind of have a combination. I have on my computer, I have the draft I'm working on. I have those plot points out in Excel so I can move them around if I need to. Um, and then I have my notebook and my and my pen to write little things that come to me. Um, because if I come out of the drafting document to go into a planning document, I kind of lose the flow of things. Um so yeah, all of my notes and when I'm editing as well, because what I'm doing at the moment with book two is I've got um, my edit notes um, on the computer and the track changes on the main document, but I make notes on post-it notes and in my notebook as I go. So I'm kind of a little bit technological and a little bit old school, a little I'm kind of half and half all over the place. With the plot points that you've got in the spreadsheet that you're trying to hit, what's the what's the balance of knowing when the right time is to meet one of them do you find that the characters are automatically kind of on that path and and they will hit what is there ever a worry that you might dump a couple in too early i i guess well what's that process that balance of hitting them at the right moments in the story that's a great one um i think it's a combination of you might not get it right in the first draft because you're getting to know the characters and what they do and how they react to things. And I think naturally sometimes things fall into place and sometimes you think, mm, I'm not entirely sure that scene's in the right place, but it, it's where it is for now. And I'll make a note that I might want to move that later, kind of shift things around because realistically, until I get to the end of the first draft, I don't really know who the characters are and what exactly they will do by the end of the first draft, I'm like, okay, right. So this is that person. Is that scene now in the right place or do I need to move it? So sometimes it just naturally feels with the flow of the story and sometimes um, it doesn't quite fit. And certainly with the Cuckoo Sister, there was one scene that I was really struggling to write and I was just like hitting my head against a brick wall. And in the end, I put a note in my draft. It literally says, chapter five, come back, write this later. What's supposed to happen in this chapter is this. And then I carried on without it. And then when I came back to the draft, <clears throat> I realized I didn't need it, which is why I was really struggling to write it because it didn't need to be there. All the information could be put in the following chapter and I didn't have to write it, which was great because <laughs> I was thinking, how am I going to put this in? I don't know what to say. And then I came back and went, yeah, it doesn't need to be there. Phew. That's amazing that your, your, your brain is kind of automatically deleting what I would imagine might be unnecessary exposition there. You mentioned... Uh, not knowing your characters in the first draft, well, kind of getting to know them right towards the end of it, and then you have to work over it and figure it out more in the editing. Now, now you've done the debut, you're editing your second, as you mentioned. How comfortable are you with that, with the process of writing an entire story in, in these people's heads for much of it without truly understanding who they are first time round? How annoying is that for a writer? <laughs> Um, I think it's both annoying and interesting because I think we, certainly from my point of view, I can think I know a character um, and then I write the first draft and I'm always a little bit like, huh, I didn't, I didn't know you were going to do that or, ooh, okay, you've come out differently than I expected. Generally, I do, I love a good anti-heroine. Like all of my characters are completely flawed um, and I just think it makes them more interesting but I always end up making them slightly nicer in the first draft and then I have to go back and make them slightly nastier again. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that's just, just, it sounds a bit, a bit odd to say that it's a bit like when you meet another person, you think you know them and then the more time you spend with them, you get to know them a bit more and you, you understand how they tick a bit better. And for me, that's just the same as, as these imaginary people. It's just that these people are in my head. If that doesn't sound too bonkers. No, it opens up a whole new avenue. You're someone that, as you said, listen to the show. So you're kind of interested in not just the practicalities of writing, but also the philosophy of it. I guess, again, being way out there, 
do you think these characters are always there in your head? Like they are completely, um, they are made up and it's just a process of, of you discovering them. I guess, how does that balance work? I read uh, a quote from Stephen King who was saying writing is mostly about discovery, not about creation. So are these kind of characters always living there from the very first moment you have of the story and you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, finding out a different bit as you would if you met a stranger? I think a little bit, yeah. Um, I love that Stephen King's writing on writing is, was always really interesting to me. So I like that theory that he's that he's uh, come up with. Um, and I think, yeah, when I start thinking about the story and these characters come to me, they kind of develop as, as real, actual people. And I always used to think it was odd when I was younger that I used to have whole conversations in my head between characters that didn't exist. And it's only when somebody said, you should write those down. I was like, huh. <laughs> and I was like, does not does everybody not do that? And some of my friends were like, no, not really. Like whole full-blown conversations and scenes and things that just played out in my head that I just thought was really interesting. Um, so it was kind of interesting to discover that not everybody does that. Um, so yes, I think is the short answer. that I think they have kind of always existed and, and they kind of pop into my head with their story. And quite often I'm there are things that kind of make me ask questions. And I think that's always a really good place to start with the stories asking questions um so I, I i sometimes run a writing workshop where um i just have a collection of pictures postcards or whatever and i get people to look at them um pick a character in that and then start asking questions why are they there where have they come from what are they feeling where are they going why are they going there why are they by themselves what are they carrying all that kind of thing to just kind of fill out the story um and i think when a story pops into my head that's kind of what I do I start asking questions of it and then it kind of hopefully develops into into a book your working life has always been around stories of sorts uh, working on tv documentaries and you coordinate the Cambridge Literary Festival uh, what was the moment for you that you thought okay I'm gonna sit down and, and have a crack at this novel what, what was that you know having conversations in your head when you were at school uh, wait like uh, a few years ago what what was this moment that you thought okay now now I'm ready um I think it was a combination of things um I wrote a book when I was a teenager that was absolutely horrific I'm so glad that that's never never seen the light of day um and I'd throughout my life I'd always written stories and short stories and I'd started a lot of books I've started a lot of books. I just haven't finished any of them. Um, and partly that's because I discovered I was writing them wrong for me. Um, but uh, this one was a combination of things. It was one that I, I had a, a milestone birthday coming up. And I was like, if I don't write my book before that, I don't think I'm ever going to do it. And that scared me more than the idea of writing a book. Um, and the other was um, my friend. Laura uh, suggested that we do Nino Rimo. So in 2018, I did Nino Rimo, wrote my 50,000 words, and it was actually a complete game changer in how I write. Because previously, I'd been a write a bit, edit a bit, write a bit, edit a bit. And I would just get so into the that's not right and that's not right. And I would convince myself that the story was never going to work, or and, and I, would, I would say, no, this is not going to work and stop. Whereas with NaNoWriMo, if you've got to write 50,000 words in a month, you haven't got time to do that. You've just got to keep going. And then after I finished the month, I thought, what happens if I just keep going? So I did that and I did a very, very rough, messy first draft. But for the first time ever, I actually had a finished book. And then I went back and edited it. And now I know that that's how I need to write. I need to get the first draft out completely and then look at what I've got and then edit it. But editing as a go-along just doesn't work for me. So, yeah, a, com a combination of, of, of scaring myself and then doing Nino Romo. You mentioned that teenage story. I won't ask too many questions about the plot. Um, was, it, was it a full-on novel? Yes, yeah. So how helpful was that then? No, um, you mentioned that you, you've started a few books before this one. How, how helpful was it knowing that well, you, you've done it once before. You can get it done because quite often that's the hurdle. It, it's the the prospect of ninety thousand words that chips away at people. How helpful was it knowing that 
well, you can do it. I don't really count that first book, really, because I, I looking back, I don't even think it was 30,000 words. I think I thought it was a book, um, but actually I didn't. No, it was like a novella. It was, yeah, well, not that novellas aren't books, but it was, it was very short um, and it, it really wasn't very good. So in my brain, I didn't count it as a book. Um, the interesting thing about The Cuckoo Sister is actually two books that didn't work put together. And I distinctly remember the moment when I was cycling to meet some writing uh, writing group friends of mine, when I suddenly realised that book A that was that had something but wasn't quite enough, and book B that also had something but also wasn't quite enough were actually the two halves of the same story. And that was a great moment because I was like, oh, okay, ah, now I see why it wasn't working, and it's because it, it they were only half a book each. Well, I am unfortunately very much not a morning person. Um, I very much admire these writers who get up at five o'clock um, to write, but I am absolutely not one of them. So I get up about seven usually in the week and uh, have to get the kids. I have two daughters um, up and ready for school and uh, they are not morning people either. Um, so the mornings are always a little bit chaotic in our house, but um Come 8.30, out the door, school run. Sometimes I do the school run. Sometimes my husband does it. And then back from the school run, um, because my writing um, desk is the dining table and looks out into the kitchen, I cannot leave all the morning detritus of dishes and breakfast things. So I have to, first I have to tidy the kitchen because otherwise I'll be looking at it all day. Um, and then I set up my writing space Uh Importantly, before all of this happens, I will have a cup of coffee in my hand. I'm pretty much fueled by coffee or tea or both throughout the day. Um, and then I'm usually sat down at my computer at about 10. Um, I still, I'm a terrific procrastinator. Um, so I like to say this like this is some brilliant um, organizational thing but it's just another way of procrastinating that I log on to my emails and social media I might send some emails like this morning I'm setting up um, a few things with my publishers um, responding to a few posts on social media um, and then generally I will get to my um, either writing or editing somewhere between half 10 and 11 which is realistically not as early as it should be um, and then I will write from about half 10 through to about lunch. Um, I will stop and have something uninspiring and quick for lunch. And then I will keep going until about, well, until three when I have to go and pick up the children from school. Um, and which is writing wise, it's, it's, I'm much more into the flow of things by about half one, two o'clock. So actually that three o'clock deadline is is really irritating. <laughs> I remember thinking before my children went to school, oh, I'll have so much time when they're at school. No, it's not a very big gap at all between drop, uh, drop off and pick up. But anyway, so three o'clock, sometimes I will have stopped somewhere useful or sometimes it will literally be in the middle of a sentence and I will scribble down on a post-it note what I was in the middle of writing about as I run out the door to go and get them. Um, and then some days when I come back uh, and if they're being cooperative and quiet <laughs> sometimes I can I can keep going for another couple of hours while they're kind of entertaining themselves because then now they're a bit older that's a bit more possible um or sometimes I will do more kind of admin stuff in the afternoon which takes less kind of deep concentration um and then generally somewhere around six I will admit defeat and pack everything up and start getting ready for making dinner and that kind of thing a lot of authors say that the majority of the story is done when they're not writing, when they're thinking about it. How good are you at switching off come six o'clock? I mean, you've had a, a busy day. It's exhausting doing the writing, kind of dealing with the kids. How good are you post six at just keeping things percolating away? Or, or, or do you tend to find that, that that's no go? It's locked away for another day. I think it kind of depends on where I am in the story. Sometimes um it, it's just in my brain the whole time and and I will be 95% present where I am and 5% making notes I have constant notes on my phone where I think of things or things come to me or questions I want to ask um and sometimes with the edit if there's a an issue I'm trying to work out I kind of 
zone out a bit and my family can see that I'm thinking about the book. Um, But most times, um, certainly when the children are awake, I am pretty good at switching off because it's just so hectic that um, I can't really not. Sometimes in the evenings I might do some reading or watch some TV and that will kind of percolate ideas I might be aware of, in which case I'll write them down. Or I might not be aware of them until the next day when I sit down at my computer and I just think, oh, hang on a minute. Um, so it's a, it really depends where I am in the process as to how easy it is to just turn the computer off and switch off. Is there an aim for every day when, when, when you get started? Do you know a point of the story that you'd like to get to? Is it done on word count? How does that work? When I'm drafting, I like to get about uh, around a thousand words a day is kind of my aim because I'm fairly fast at writing, I think. But so some scenes are more difficult, so it might be slightly under or some scenes are really just flow and sometimes it can be over. Um, But if I've done around a thousand words, it suggests that I have actually sat down and got on with it rather than constantly distracting myself, which I'm also quite good at. Um, And when I'm editing, I like to do it by chapter, but it depends how much work needs doing on the chapter. So when I'm putting the draft together, I look at the word count. And when I'm doing the edit, I look at the, the kind of chapter count to see how far into the book I am. Now, I, I don't want this next question to come off as a slap on the wrist for you. Okay? <laughs> okay. I, do, I, do not, I do not want you to think I'm chastising you for anything. However, <clears throat> the famous words, having said that, um, you were saying a second ago that you thought when you had kids there would be at school you'd have all this glorious time that you could work and you you know that you're able to you get into your flow you get into the groove after lunch so about 1 30 you said I, I guess the question is why do you not it can't be as simple as why why don't you start earlier because you're aware you're not a morning person but then so much of writing is a challenge that people do work through things so what is it why are you not using that full nine hours again i'm not it's not no it's nine hours christ i'm about to say nine hours would be great <laughs> why are you not using those kind of full five and a half ish hours um again not a slap on the wrist just curious yeah um well i think the answer is sometimes i do particularly when heading towards deadlines um sometimes i can make myself literally kids at the door bum on seat computer open go um sometimes when i um, I'm also up against deadline. I will then work in the evenings when the children are asleep or at least getting towards there um, because I, I work quite well in the evenings. And then um, sometimes it, it just takes my brain a while to switch off from domestic parental and kind of change my mindset into writer. Um, and that sometimes takes a bit of time Um so it really depends how much I need to get done and what else I've got on the list. So it's a combination of procrastination and having to switch my brain from kind of like one mode to the other, particularly because I work literally in the center of my family home. I'm surrounded by kind of family stuff. Like I, at the moment, I'm looking out of my window to the end of the garden where there's like a little Wendy house that, that is now too small for the children. And I keep looking at it thinking, if I were to take that down, could I put a writing room in that space? And I wonder if I would be, would find it easier to just shut the door behind me, go to the, to my office um, and write earlier if I wasn't, if, if I was writing in a different place. You know what it'll be, don't you? Something that I imagine the kids never use, but as soon as it's not there, they're annoyed that it's gone. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Listen, we, um, well, you'll know from hearing the show, we, we get quite niche, nerdy and a bit technical. Um, what, what, what are you writing on? What font do you write with, Alison? I had to look this up because I know I have a font, but my brain was thinking, what is it? So I write on my laptop. It's a Lenovo. Um, I love it. It's great. And uh, I use Word um, for drafting and I use Excel for planning and I write in Calibri 11. It's a, good, it's a strong font. Calibri is a strong font, very strong font. Um, writing and, and your writing process, is, it's, a, it's a constant evolution. Now you are, your, your debut is out, you're editing your second one. I guess, what have you learned 
so far we've kind of touched the surfaces and things you're becoming aware of you're not really a morning person you've got this window of time and you you start to get going after lunch what have you learned about the way you work and the way you work best that will hopefully help you out as as you move forward through novels um well I think that that first one of of knowing that I just have to get it written like dirty first draft um there's a, a great quote from Kate Grenville um who I saw at a Cambridge Literary Festival event actually and she's just said get it down fix it up later and I have that written on a post-it note while I'm drafting to remind me to just get it down, fix it up later. Um, which also is very freeing because you think, well, it's not very good. Maybe it's not very good and all you kind of, uh, your paranoia has come in. You think it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be there. So that, that was really helpful. Um, knowing that it takes me a little while to get into the writing, um, I can trick myself to, to do that faster as well, which is useful. Um, but I think knowing some of the things that I learned from the Faber Academy course um, that I did was really helpful. The plot points being a particularly good one because it's not a plan as such, but it's also not, not a plan. So I like to have an idea of where the story is supposed to be going so that it doesn't go off on a complete tangent. But I also like to, to have enough movement within that, that I can completely go off on a tangent if it turns out that that's what the story needs so I think it's just listening to an instinct I didn't know that I had is partly that. Um, but I think you're right, it's still changing. Like this is only the the second full book that I have written. So I've done things slightly differently from the first book to the second book. Uh, in particular, writing a timeline right at the beginning of ages and key events um, so that I don't accidentally suddenly have a character doing something at the wrong time of year or isn't appropriate for how old they are um because that, that caused problems with the first book my editor and I had to go back because um, we changed the timeline um from the draft that my editor saw to the final one to kind of um squash some of the dates into a, a smaller time period and I had to go through and because uh, the, the book has children in it, and of course, if the, the timeline was shorter, the ages were different, so they behaved differently and spoke differently. So I had to go through and, and kind of edit all that. So for the second book, um, I have a I sat and wrote down a timeline of all the key dramatic events that happen, and then tied that up with the timeline um, of one of the younger characters as to how old they would be, um, and then a timeline of the main character as to what she was doing where. So I kind of had an overarching kind of historical thread of what happened when to who, um, so that I don't accidentally mix it up. That one's been really helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a question, actually, that I've been sent in from a, a listener. I think it'd be interesting to ask you, someone that's just publishing their first book and then, and then someone that's maybe 40 books down the line just to see the different uh, opinions... This is from someone called Viri Diana, who's over in California, amazing, uh, who wants to know, uh, could I get advice on overcoming the insecurities of not writing a good enough book? So uh, along the way, when you were working on The Cuckoo Sister, how many times did you find yourself thinking, well, is this really good enough? And you mentioned that you've started and then stopped a, a few other stories along the way were there times when you felt that and when that happened how did you overcome that doubt that's a really very much a writer's question um I think I think I don't know if you can overcome it I think while I'm writing I flip between this is the best thing I've ever written and this is the worst book ever to exist um but I think just reminding yourself that you're always gonna think that and you just have to ignore it um and to silence that self-doubt as much as possible because lots of people write books. Why shouldn't you write a book? That's the, you know, go ahead. And and you'll find that writers who you think are the most amazing writers ever also have this paranoia that what they're writing is terrible. Um, what I found was quite helpful was going to read reviews of books that I loved and books that I hated. Um, don't hate very many books to be fair, but, um, and just seeing the range of opinions so that, there can be a book that, that like I, I recently got um, my first one star review, which was fun. Um, and I immediately then went to go and read the one star reviews for um, All the Light We Cannot See, which is one of the best books I've ever read ever. I love that book. Um, and they've got one star reviews as well. And it just made me think that every book is both brilliant 
and awful in different phases for different people. So if you want to write your story, write your story. You will think it is brilliant. You will think it is awful. Other people will think it's brilliant. Other people will think it's awful. But if you don't write it, it can't exist. So just write it. That would be my suggestion. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with Alison in just a sec. Thank you so much if you have sent your book recommendations to me at writersroutine.com a couple of weeks ago i just asked what was the best book that you've read so far this year and we're what five weeks in so i'd be interested to see how slim the pickings are hopefully you're a much quicker reader than i am and you've managed to get through a few in these first few weeks already i think it's a good idea we've you know we're a hive mind we're all in this podcast together because we like writers writing we like stories, so it would be wise to use this writing community to chuck out book suggestions and just get fantastic stories that we can read. I think that's a good plan. So, yeah, send over the best book that you've read this year if you can. The easiest way is by clicking the contact form over at writersroutine.com. You can always send an email to me too at writersroutine at gmail.com. Uh, thank you to Claire Meller, who has done that who says the best book they've read so far this year is Small Things Like These. It's by Claire Keegan. It's set in an Irish town in the 1980s. It asks us the big questions about morality, family, and what it means to be kind. Best part is it's only 128 pages. I'll need to pick that one up, Claire. There's a few things that stand out to me. One, 128 pages. I'm a massive fan of brevity. I I love a book that takes me completely outside of my comfort zone. I was not alive in the 1980s. Sorry if that's sorry if that's annoyed you. Um, and I, I I've not spent too much time in the countryside of Ireland. And you have quite strong ideas about what these places might be like. So to read a story set in that time, I think might reveal something new to me. Thank you. I'll give that a read. That's small things like these by Claire Keegan. Claire, thank you for that. Uh, also, Erica Lott has got in touch. Erica, thank you for supporting the show over on Patreon. Uh, that's how you sent this to me. Erica says, uh, A Game of Hearts and Heists by Ruby Rowe. It's the first book in a lesbian fantasy romance series. Uh, Erica says she thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a fun and steamy read. I'm a big fan of any book that <laughs> that you can describe as a steamy read. Erica says she couldn't put it down. Fantastic. She got an early copy, but it's out in early February. So if that's your thing, uh, pick it up. It's A Game of Hearts and Heists. I love the title. A Game of Hearts and Heists, because you know what you're getting, don't you? You're getting a thrilling, steamy time. That's by Ruby Rowe. Erica, thank you for sending that to me. Uh, also, thank you to Tarini Mahan, who's got in touch. A couple of books to suggest. One is The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick. Tarini says they wanted to read up on the craft of memoir writing as they work on theirs. Brilliant idea. And also they want to suggest Age of Vice. That's Deepti Kapoor. 
Uh, Torini says they're not normally a fan of crime novels, but this one has a very engaging plot, which is told through the most evocative language, helping readers play the scene out in their minds. I I think that's a brilliant idea, and I'll pick that one up, Age of Vice by Deep T. Kapoor. Because you might, like, for this book, for this podcast, I read quite a lot of crime fiction, and I'm a big fan of all types of crime fiction, and I I love the way that they're told. But just sometimes when someone does something new with it, which is how it sounds Deep T. Kapoor is doing, as you say, through the most evocative use of language. To, to hear that someone is, is doing something slightly different, is doing it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a unique way, if it, even if it's just the language that they're telling a story in, I think I'd be interested to compare that with other crime stories that I've read recently. So thank you for those, Claire, Erica and Torini. Thank you for sending in your suggestions. If you have read a book this year that you thought was fantastic, that even though it's barely February, you think it might well make the top three of your favourite books of 2023, let me know, please, and I'll share it on the podcast next week. You can get in touch, use the contact page at writersroutine.com, or you can drop an email to me at writersroutine at gmail.com. Now, if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell your stories, if it's helped you plan, if it's helped you plot, if it's helped you sort out your day, maybe just a few bits of advice that has just really sorted things out for you, um, you can say thank you to us for that over at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. By supporting us there, it's the best way to help us carry on, to help us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as possible. Now, it doesn't need to be a lot, just a a few quid a month, a few dollars a month can really help us out. It helps us keep going. For that, we bring you so many different fantastic authors. You get our undying thanks. You get our eternal gratitude. You get other ways of saying those two words. You also get merch. There is bonus content and there is a way for your book to sponsor the show. And you're making a real difference with the podcast. Thank you so much if you're doing that already. It's a brilliant way to help us out. And I appreciate anything that you can send our way. If you enjoy the show... If you'd like to help us out for that, become a backer and pledge to support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Alison Stockham chatting about her new novel, The Cuckoo Sister. It's all about Maggie, who seemingly has the perfect life, only she's cracking under the strain of everything. And when Maggie walks out one day and doesn't return, her sister Rose is all too willing to step into her life. You can hear why Alison is perfectly happy finding the right word later on in the process just bunging any old place filler down while she's cracking on early doors also we talk about why reading books at bedtime aloud helped her understand pacing and structure and we pick things up just with one last touch on the writing routine what does she do when the words are struggling to come out I think getting up and stepping away from the computer for a while because when the computer starts kind of looking back at you um in a kind of why aren't you writing this is terrible just get up and, and move away from it if it's for a short period of time then yeah make a cup of tea um my my dad used to work in in television production and he always used to say it's amazing how many things can be fixed in the time it takes to make a cup of tea um we have like i said i'm quite lucky that we have a park behind our house so sometimes if i've got a bit longer of a break um of course being aware that i don't actually have that much time between school and school um i might just do a do a lap of the park get fresh air for 10 minutes come back and sit down um music sometimes helps but I cannot write to music that has words otherwise I find myself listening to the words rather than the ones I'm concentrating on the ones I'm supposed to be writing with the exception of of Tori Amos who I know so well that they kind of merge um or music that isn't in English that's interesting yeah because then I can kind of yeah I love. I really like writing to Christine and the Queens because I love her stuff, um, but it's mostly in French, so um, I don't understand a large proportion of it. Um, but it's really nice to listen to. Do you still do you find yourself, even though it's in a, a foreign language, kind of chiming in with the emotion and how much m- might that affect what you're writing? Yeah, definitely. There are certain tracks I can't work to while I'm writing unless it's matches this the mood that I'm trying to create and I know some writers um write to film soundtracks because obviously that music is designed to create an emotional response um 
but I think for me, the time it would take for me to do the research into what music I need to write, so I might as well just write the scene. But yeah, music, de- music, definitely. That, they see that's another rabbit hole I could go down of procrastination. I'm like, this is important. <laughs> no, just write it. But um, yeah, I think music very definitely can affect the overall feel of the scene. And sometimes I deliberately do that with songs I know really well. I will play it and then write to kind of get the the right feeling to it. Let's talk about the novel. So The Cuckoo Sister is the debut. You mentioned uh, that it's uh, two books squashed together. And this might be a tricky question then to answer. Uh, What was the the very first moment that you remember the idea for what became this story popping into your head? How did it present itself? Oh, goodness. I'm not sure I can remember the... Because the the first idea was this idea of somebody who turned up and took over somebody else's life the whole cuckoo element um I I I can't remember where that idea came from (laughs) and the follow-up one was about somebody running away from their life um and I think that was possibly based on the fact that I'd done I was really lucky that after I um, finished my degree I hopped on a plane and just kind of went around the world for a bit um to various places and got jobs and just tried living um in different places um, and I think part of me was kind of yearning for that a bit to kind of just go on an adventure. Um, but like I said, I distinctly remember the moment when I realized that those two threads were the same story. And then, so I, like it, I didn't put the two bits of writing I'd already done together. I started it writing from scratch, but with the two themes woven in together. Um, yeah, that one I remember when I was cycling over the railway bridge, kind of ah moment when you're like, oh, okay, now I can see how the story is supposed to work. Is there a catalyst for that um, uh, choir singing angel- angelic voices moment? Do you, do you remember that? Um, I think it's the movement, actually. I know a lot of writers say that ideas come to them when they're writing, uh, not writing, walking. Um, and I, I think sometimes just getting out there and, physically moving can help although I found it really interesting that I cannot think while I'm running (laughs) I can think while I'm walking but I cannot think while I'm running so what I do when I'm running is I listen to podcasts like this one (laughs) and this is my Saturday morning podcast when I go running um so you're the one you're the listener that listens on a Saturday morning I found you yeah (laughs) and um so yeah I think it was the movement I think I, I was on my bike I think sometimes when you're getting your body to do something else, your brain has the opportunity to kind of wander a bit. What happens next then? You mentioned you, mentioned you ask, it's, it's important to ask questions. That's where all good stories start. When you have got these two themes, one of escaping, one of controlling, what questions are you asking before you feel in a position to start writing? Well, I was trying to work out what characters to use for these stories. And then I started thinking about sisters because... Um, I, like I said, I have two daughters, so obviously they're sisters. Um, my mum has a sister. My grandmother was one of four sisters. Uh, my husband has two sisters, but I don't have sisters. I've got a brother, lovely brother. We get on very well. Um, but I, I always look at that sister-sister relationship, and I was just really intrigued by it. And I was like, what would happen if the two main characters in this story were sisters? Um and then bringing in the sibling rivalry into the element of those two things. And suddenly I was like, okay, what if the cuckoo was your sister? And it kind of all developed from there, really. So it's, it's about, yeah, it's about sibling rivalry at its worst. Because obviously you take, a, you take a question and then you think, how can I push this to the very limits of its kind of dramatic potential um, to see what happens? Well, you're asking these questions... And then with the answers, you mentioned that the plot point system that you like to stick on Excel. Um, I guess very openly, how are you working that part out? What are you, so you're pushing these questions to the limit with which they can be answered. How are you forming that into a narrative thread that you can sum up in 20 or so bullet points? I think it was certainly with, with the cuckoo sister with Maggie when she leaves and she leaves right at the beginning of the book. So that's not any spoilers there. Um, my questions for her was why did she leave? Where did she go? How did she get there? What did she do when she got there? Who did she meet? Where did she stay? What did she think about? 
what did she you know how did she live how did she survive and all sorts of questions like that and then with Rose who stepped in it's like well what would you do and what what does she want and how is she going to get it and what is she going to sacrifice for that and what is she going to take and then just kind of pointing out major points within a storyline that could happen and going right well that's got to happen and then for that to happen that will happen and what's the consequence of that and how do the other characters in the book react to that and then kind of build up from there and how keen while you were writing were your characters uh, willing to toe the line with the plot points that you had planned out for them initially? How, how frequently were they trying to drag your story off course? I think with, with the Cuckoo Sister, because it had been in my head on and off for such a long time, and I had not written it for such a long time, they actually were fairly well formed by the time I actually sat down to write it, um, because I, I had... It, it's, it can be very difficult to to find time and dedicate time to writing when you haven't done it before because it just seems a little bit like a little bit frivolous. Like I'm going to write my novel, um, so I had done a, a lot of thinking about it and the storyline and kind of making notes. So actually, they behaved fairly as I wanted them to. Um, the second book, which has come together a lot faster, yeah, my. <laughs> A couple of my characters are not doing what they were supposed to do. Um, but that's because I don't know them as well, um, because they haven't been in my brain quite as long. And certainly with the Cookie Sister, I, when I had when I wrote that, my youngest was still at um, preschool. So I had 15 hours a week when she wasn't here in which to write it. So I had to get down and, and I, I couldn't procrastinate then because I literally didn't have time. It was like three and a half hours. Right, go, let's go. Wow, so that's interesting. So it's what we were talking about earlier on. It's it's you've got more time now, and this quite often happens when uh, writers become full time. They find themselves with luxury of, a, of a, yeah. a few more hours, and it does take them a while to get down to it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's the luxury of procrastination. Yeah, when when I was drafting first draft of the Kiki Sister, um, yeah, I think I had about eleven hours a week when I didn't have a small child needing attention. Um, so I. I mean, with that, I just ignored all the all the housework and the everything. It's like, no, that's just going to have to wait until I've I've done my writing. Uh, and as someone who is interested in in the process of writing, how much did you think about uh, the, the 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 actual words on the page first time round? You, you spoke earlier about advice that you heard, which was just just get it down and fix it later. Almost uh, were you overly concerned with making sure the next word was the correct one? No. <laughs> in fact, I remember reading back the draft and I'm both being amused and annoyed at my previous self because it says things like, blah, 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 this but different word, blah, 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 blah. Describe it like this. I mean, literally just sentences where you kind of go, I mean to say this. I can't work out what I'm trying to say. I mean this word, but not quite. Find the right word later. So I literally leave notes to myself in the first draft. Um, and sometimes if, if if it's kind of working and I might sit and think, more about the sentence and the flow of the sentence but generally no get it down fix it up later I'll come back and I might look at it and go that's not the right word that's not quite what I mean that sentence doesn't flow properly and when I'm editing I read it out loud and it's, which is vital because the number of times I fall over my own teeth trying to say a sentence I'm like yeah that's not the right sentence and then in the edit I take the time to make it um, make sure that the word is exactly the right word and the sentence has the right rhythm to it and that the you know the surrounding sentences are of, of different varying lengths so that it's a joy to read. I mean, one of the nice things about having small children and, and is that reading bedtime stories is it becomes very clear which stories are a joy to read as well as a joy to listen to and, and how those are structured. So actually when I was reading hundreds of of uh, children's books over the years it, that's also been really handy in, in kind of learning to write because there are certain books where your child picks it and you just think yeah I'll like, read that again that looks great and certain books where you're like really you want me to read that one again okay um and it was it was often about the the rhythm and the musicality of the words as to how pleasurable it was to read them and I try and apply that um to my writing when I get to editing stage but no at drafting stage it's just like no get it out how hard is that in the editing stage then when, when you come across a sentence 
at the end of which you've written, uh, must do better, change this word here. How easy is it? Because you're then fully focusing on finishing the sentence, making that word perfect. How much of a pressure is there to get that right? And how easy do you find that bit? Um, I think often it gives you a bit of a distance from it that makes it a bit easier to um, to work out what's not working. A bit like, um, I think I, like half the world, I started doing Wordle and I find it really interesting that I cannot, for the life of me, do it at like nine o'clock in the morning and I'll get a couple of guesses in and I'll, I'll be completely stumped. And then I come back to it like four or five whatever hours later and the word is incredibly obvious to me. I'm like, well, it's clearly this. Um, and I think sometimes it's the same with the writing. I take a step away from it and I read it back and I go, well, ah, the word I'm looking for is this. And that sentence doesn't work because it's got too many clauses in it. Or I think, so I just think the distance of editing actually makes that process easier for me um, rather than I'm trying to get the story out. So I think the first draft is about getting the story out and the editing is about making the story more readable. And as someone who has worked around stories and and around books, I mean, your work with the festival, how keenly in mind were you keeping, I guess, the the commerciality, if that's a word, of your story? I'm talking about, were you thinking about the conventions of of genre and, and what plot points you would need to hit? No, um, I absolutely didn't think about genre at all um, with the, the first book. With the second book, I, I'm more aware that it that it has to kind of hit similar themes and similar feel to the first book. Um, but with The Cuckoo Sister, now I just wrote the story and then I, I did kind of look at it and think, where where would this sit? And actually, it's, it's one of those books that I think it could sit in a couple of places, Um so uh, some of the reviews have been that this is is kind of a, a, an unusual story that it's kind of one of one type and it's a bit of another type and it's um so no I didn't think about a genre at all I, maybe I should have done I don't know I know some people are very like I'm going to write this type of book and it's going to sit here on the bookshelves and I'm going to be next to this author but no I just I just had the story and I wanted to tell it and I wanted to tell it um to the best of my ability how much did your experience in helping to produce stories for telly impact what you were writing in a novel I think that was really useful um I think um knowing kind of the general structure to storytelling so you know you kind of the the start the beginning at the end and you're having to kind of have moments of of heightened drama and moments where it kind of slows down a bit I think it helps with pacing as well because if, if you look at tv both in documentary and drama it's it has different pace levels some points it's kind of quite speedy and tense and other periods it's kind of slow and it's giving your audience or your readers time to breathe and to kind of um go with the flow a bit more um so i think just understanding the structure of story in general was really helpful and um way back at the beginning of my career i actually trained as a script editor helping screenwriters um edit their their scripts for screen and that was really helpful as well looking at the structure um of stories and and how you put together um a screenplay but actually the other thing that was really helpful about that is as part of the course they showed you first drafts of really famous films and it was incredibly reassuring because there was one film i won't name it because i don't want to be rude but the first draft was absolutely horrendous but you could see that there was a a kernel of something in there that really worked and the final film is probably one of it's probably one of my top 20 films ever like it, it was a brilliant film but the first draft of it was terrible um, and that was also reassuring when writing my first draft it's just like first drafts sometimes are just awful and that's okay and that is it for this week's episode of the show thank you so much to Alison Stockham uh, for being with us that new novel is The Cuckoo Sister and it is out now now if there is a brilliant book that you've read so far in 2023 
if you'd like to share it with us and the rest of the writing community here I really do want to start a book club every now and then just checking in seeing what we've been reading and passing those stories on easiest way is writersroutine at gmail.com or by using the contact form at writersroutine.com thank you to Claire Erica and Torini that got in touch today. Next week we are chatting to Tom Hindle who released a cosy crime novel last year called Fatal Crossing uh, and he's got a brand new one out as well it's called The Murder Game you can hear from Tom next week on the show. In the meantime support us patreon.com forward slash writers routine and I will see you next week until then. Bye up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.